0: good to be together. We do this, we plot your Bible and let's get ready to be in the word. Um, If you don't have a Bible or you're a guest or visitor, you didn't bring a Bible, just raise your hand. Ushers are coming down the aisle right now. We want you to have a Bible in your hands. We're going into the deep end of the pool here today. We're going to be looking at some scriptures that are so rich and so wonderful that you absolutely must have your own Bible so you can lean into this with me. We're going to start though, In the gospel of Luke, chapter 6, we turn there, Luke 6. Now, Luke wrote his gospel account because he wanted to bless a personal friend of his with a gift of confidence in Christ. Do you remember that? He wrote this book for a friend, someone he knew. And he wrote it because he wanted to give that friend a little boost of confidence. If you were with us on Sunday number one, you remember that in the opening verses of Luke, Luke tells us why he wrote. When he said, it seemed good to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Remember that? This is his friend. He knows Theophilus. And he said, I felt like it was a good thing to do to write this account. Why? So that you may have certainty concerning the things that you've heard about Jesus. Luke said, I want to give you a boost of confidence. Because I know how hard it can be in this world. This world will rob you of confidence in Christ. Won't it? You're just out there in the world, you're just getting beat up. And sometimes you come in on Sunday and you're like, I am so disoriented. I need someone to, to reassure me. I had a couple conversations with people like that out there when you're trying to find the coffee in the old place, you know, and you're like, the apocalypse is upon us. Where is the coffee? I was like, be, be reassured. I want to give you a boost of confidence It's right here in the foyer, all right? That's what Luke's doing here. And you know what's amazing? He wrote this masterpiece that we're going to take years in our church to study And the whole purpose of this book was to give a friend of his some confidence in Christ. Doesn't that sound good? Does that sound good? It sounds good to me. I've been sitting out, it's been my joy over the last couple Sundays to sit out there and hear Luke preached and just, oh, just be reassured and bolstered in my confidence in Christ. I need it so much. How did Luke do it? Well, he wrote this Incredible book. Luke was a master storyteller. So he gives us the story of Jesus. And as you're studying, and I, I, don't, know, I, I don't know about you, but as you've been hearing the gospel of Luke preached, what's happening is we're, we're seeing that every, every little detail is connected. Luke doesn't waste any words. And you're, and you're confronted with how rich and profound Jesus is you cannot help but go Jesus is Lord I believe every word that Luke is saying it's, he's such a masterful storyteller but there's another thing that Luke does we're going to talk about in our time together today at critical moments in this gospel Luke will insert a statement that will that Jesus will make about his identity and these statements they're always highly charged they're massive claims. And when the people hear them, the purpose of the claim is that, is that the hearers stop and go, what did he just say? Did he say what I think I heard him say? Who says something like that? The kinds of statements where you're, you're confronted with a decision, you go, this guy is either out of his mind or he is totally unique. So you remember a couple weeks ago in Guy's masterful sermon where they've lowered the paralytic down into the room. Remember this story? Jesus is there, and he's having a conversation with the guy, and he wants to forgive the guy's sins. But everyone in the room is going, wait a minute, there's only one person who can forgive sins, God alone. And so Jesus drops this bomb. He says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And then he heals the guy. Now, that's the kind of thing that'll get you killed. You say something like that, that'll get you killed. Because everyone in the room knows there's only one person who has the authority to forgive sins. It's God himself. You say something like that, that'll get you killed. That's like walking into a bar in Corvallis with a duck sweatshirt on. All right? get... And then just, you know, say something like about, like hypothetical, like how the ducks have the best recruiting class in Oregon. or You know, hypothetical, that'll get you killed, right? Yeah. Jesus was saying that kind of stuff. All the time. And he says it in the text we're going to look at today. We look at it with me? Luke 6, verses 1 to 11. What we have today is we have two stories set next to each other. They're both about a conflict that Jesus is having with the Pharisees over the Sabbath. And right in the middle of them in verse 5, Jesus drops a bomb. Let's look at it together. Luke six verse one. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, "Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath?" And Jesus answered them, "Have you not read when David, what David did when he was hungry, he?" And those who are with him, how he entered the house of God, the temple, and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. Jesus is talking about this interesting story that we'll talk about a little bit more later, but it's a story in the Old Testament where David is on the run for his life. He's the, he is the true anointed king by God, but Saul is still on the throne, and Saul wants to kill David, so David is on the run for his life, he and his companions, and they're starving to death, and they enter the temple, and they try to eat the bread, the show bread, which is not permitted, that'll get you killed, but David gets away with it. And then Luke says this, not only did David eat that bread, but he also gave gave it to those who were with him. And then Jesus said to them, here it is. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That will get you killed, to say that. In fact, I think what the the space there, that pause, it's like Luke just leaves that hanging because everyone in the room was thinking in that moment, What did he just say? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath? Did I hear what I think I heard? Look what happens next. Verse 6, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus, which is code for they wanted to kill him. (laughs) They wanted to kill him. What's happening here is that Jesus is in this conflict with these people called the Pharisees. Now, if you're if you're new to church or you or you're new to Christianity, the Pharisees were a group of, of leadership, religious leaders, and they were very devout, they were very zealous to obey the Old Testament laws. They really cared about this. And in particular, they really cared about the Sabbath, which is Difficult for us as moderns. We have so much cultural distance that we have a hard time figuring out, what was the big deal with the Sabbath? I just, I don't get it. But one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that the Pharisees believed that the reason they were under the the terrible rule of the Romans is because they, the people of Israel, had failed to keep the Sabbath holy. They believed this. They believe we're we're being punished. God God has allowed Rome to overcome us in this tyrannical rule because we have not kept the Sabbath holy. And and they knew the Sabbath was given to us to set us apart. It it makes our people unique. We we stand out from other groups around us because of this, this special day that God gave us. And if we practice the Sabbath, we will be blessed. But by, by dishonoring the Sabbath, this is why we're in this situation. And so they became obsessed with how to keep the Sabbath. So obsessed that they, they built what was called a fence around the actual law. The law itself was, was very brief. It just said, remember the Sabbath, Exodus 20, and keep it holy. Well, how do you do that? Well, you don't work. Well, what's work? well the the pharisees decided we need to we need to be really clear so we need to just we need to add a bunch of other rules around it to make sure you never work and none of those rules were part of god's original design but they kind of added it around. and apparently the the disciples and jesus broke like three of these extra rules so when they plucked the grain, they were harvesting, when they rubbed it between their hands, they were threshing, when they blew it, they were winnowing. I mean, it got really strange, all right? And they were breaking all these rules. When Kathy and I were raising our our daughters, we really didn't have very many rules in our house. Just a couple of, like, non-negotiable rules. We had a lot of principles for our parenting. So, like, for example, we would say to the girls, before you refuse to eat something, you have to at least take one bite, all right? Parents, you feel me on this? It's like, you can't say you hate something if you haven't tasted it. And, and Kathy was great. She would say, I'm not going to make another dinner. Like, this is dinner. You have to at least take a bite, which was a great idea right up until the day where we set split pea soup before my, my daughters. And Bridget had this look where I knew, like, she'll literally go on a hunger fast right now. She will not eat this. Okay. But we did have one rule that for us was, it was a non-negotiable. And that rule was, don't talk back to us. We're like, that, that for us, that one really mattered. Do not talk back to us, all right? I was like, you are four and your pants are on backwards, okay? <laughs> and they're on backwards every day because you put them on. So I do not think you're qualified to question my parenting. So that was like, it was just a rule, okay? <laughs> but what if... Now, this is crazy, but what if in an effort to keep them from breaking that rule, we added a bunch of other rules around it, like, like when, just to make sure you don't do this, when you talk to us, don't make eye contact, okay? How weird would that be? Or never talk to me 15 minutes before bedtime, because that's when it always happens, you know? It would just get super bizarre. That's what's happening here. The Pharisees are like, they cared about something that was good, but then what they did is they just burdened it with all of these extra layers. They they just sucked life right out of it. Isn't that interesting? And what's amazing about it is that you got to realize the Sabbath was a gift from God. It was like the biggest blessing. God said, I want to bless you with Sabbath." But what the Pharisees had done is they had taken something that was meant to be a blessing and they strapped it with all of this heaviness. And so Jesus enters the picture because he cares, right? Now, here's the thing you need to know. When you read this passage, the purpose of this story is not for Christians to try to figure out how we're supposed to practice Sabbath today. That is not the purpose of this story. We did preach a sermon on that back in January. Eric preached a sermon on how Christians should practice Sabbath. It was masterful. Go listen to that. But that's not what this story is about. This story, the purpose of this story, is for the reader to listen to what Jesus claims and say, what did he just say? Who is this? Who is this person? And is my life oriented appropriately underneath him? Based on what he's saying here. This statement, look at it again, verse 5. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That was like a bomb going off. He was saying, I am the Lord of the fourth commandment. That'll get you killed. That did get him killed. Eventually. A person who says, I want you to know something. I am the Lord of the fourth commandment. Do you know what they're saying? They're saying, I am over the commandments. They come from me. Unbelievable. Profound. That's the purpose of this passage. And so what we have to do today is we have to take that sentence. If you just look at it in verse 5, we have to break that sentence down and get underneath it because it's critical. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What I want to do is I want to break that down into two pieces that we can manage, two questions we're going to ask. Here's question number one. Question number one is what does the phrase Son of Man mean? What does that mean? And then question two will be, what does the phrase Lord of the Sabbath mean? They're both critical. So we'll take the time we have remaining just to ask those questions and answer them. Jesus said, I'm the son of man. What does that phrase mean? The son of man. It's a very odd phrase. But did you know that phrase is the preferred title that Jesus uses to describe himself. It's like his favorite title. He uses it all the time. He uses it 24 times in the Gospel of Luke, 30 times in the Gospel of Matthew, 16 times in the Gospel of Mark, and 14 times in the Gospel of Luke. It's his favorite phrase. Now, when people referred to Jesus in the Gospels, and in the New Testament, they used a different title. They would always refer to Jesus as the Christ. Does that sound familiar? We've talked about that word. It's not His last name. That's a title. It means an anointed one. It was kings and priests were anointed with oil to symbolize that they were they had authority, that they were blessed by God. And that word anointed comes through in the Greek as Christ and all of the people in the gospels would say you're the Christ but what's interesting is that Jesus avoided that title intentionally it was almost like he did not want he didn't want to stir things up so he avoided using the title Christ and instead he would always refer to himself as the son of man in fact there's even moments where like for example Remember the moment where Jesus is with the disciples and he says, who do the people say I am? And they say, some say you're Elijah or some other the prophet. And then Peter says, I know who you are. You're the Christ. And you know what Jesus does? He immediately changes the subject. And he says, I tell you truly, the son of man will be turned over to men where he'll be tortured and crucified. He avoided Christ, and, he, and, and instead he uses this title, Son of Man, over and over and over. What does it mean? Why would he do this? Okay, at one level, that phrase, it's a Hebrew phrase, to be a son of something means that you're a part of a, of a group. So to be a son of Adam, a son of humanity, at one level, it just means a human one, a human being. Jesus is drawing attention to his humanity with this phrase. But there's something else going on. Every time that Jesus uses the phrase Son of Man in the Gospels, the phrase brings with it this highly charged imagery from the Old Testament, a specific chapter in the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Daniel. And I want to have you turn there with me, so keep your finger in Luke 6 and go to the book of Daniel, chapter 7. And while you're turning there, I'm going to use an illustration to help you understand what we're about to read together. Okay? Here's the illustration. In our culture, we have certain phrases that we can say that will immediately conjure up imagery that everyone understands from our history or from our past, our our consciousness as as a culture. And with one phrase, we can immediately cause all of that imagery to come into people's minds. So let me give you an example. If I were to say the phrase, the Twin Towers or 9-11... Immediately, right, immediately you have all this imagery that comes in your head, graphic imagery, airplanes hitting buildings and, you know. Or if I were to say to you, it's one small step for man. What do you immediately think? Ryan Gosling. It's always Ryan Gosling, right? (laughs) He's in every movie. No, you think Neil Armstrong. One small step for man. One giant. And you have all the imagery of of, of a man on the moon, right? That is what's happening with this passage. And with this phrase, son of man, it would have immediately conjured up a very charged, graphic, symbolic dream that Daniel had while he was in captivity in Babylon. And what happened in that dream, he's dreaming, and he sees water stirred and coming out of the water's comes these four beasts, this is in verses 1 through 8, you can read it later, these four beasts come out and they're, and they're ugly and they're sort of these, they're these weird crossings of different animals, bears and lions, and they're, and they're violent and they're killing people. One after another comes out and they represent kingdoms of the world, Babylon, Persia, Rome. And the last one that comes out is just a total mutant with multiple eyes it's very graphic. And what happens next in the vision in verses 9 to 11 is that then Daniel sees these thrones set up in heavens. Not one throne, but more than one throne. And on one of these thrones sits this person whom Daniel calls the Ancient of Days, who's all white and flames are all around him. He's obviously all-powerful. And he's there to judge and books are opened and he judges and the four beasts are condemned and they're destroyed and then comes this graphic picture with a son of man will you look at it luke uh, uh it's daniel 7 i'm going to read just verses 13 and 14. here's what happened next i saw in the night visit visions and behold Okay, so it's this amazing vision. Ancient of Days is there ruling on a throne, but there's an empty throne. And Daniel in the vision is looking at the throne and thinking, who's that throne for? And then on a cloud comes one like a, a son of man. He's human, but he's also, he must be divine. Perfectly human, perfectly divine, a super divine human who rides in on the clouds and he's given throne and he's given authority and he's given power and his reign is perfect and righteous and all who are under his reign are blessed. And then what happens is you pick up the gospel of Luke and every time that Jesus refers to himself, he uses the phrase, Son of man. And immediately, it would conjure up all of this imagery for everyone who heard it. Every time. So let me give you a couple examples. I'll just put these on the screen. Um, here's Luke chapter 21, verses 25 to 28 where Jesus said there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. He's talking about end times. And he says, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And now when these things began to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And Jesus said, I am that son of man. Or Jesus said when he was in Zacchaeus' house, Luke 19.10, he would say things like, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Or Jesus stood up in a synagogue and there was a man there who was a paralytic, and he said, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And he healed him. Or Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority to forgive sins. He has authority to sit on a throne. He has authority to bring redemption, to seek and save the lost. He has authority over the fourth commandment. Who is this person? And what's going to happen is we study Luke. You're going to begin to notice. We'll be preaching through Luke and we'll come to a Son of Man phrase and you'll read it and you'll go, now I know what that phrase means. And all of that imagery will come in and you'll begin to see all of the connections that Jesus is making. And every time... You hear that phrase, son of man. You know what Luke's purpose is? His purpose is that you would stop and ask the question, wait a minute, is my life arranged appropriately around someone like this? Based on what he's saying? Is my life organized underneath his leadership? That's what Jesus was trying to say to the Pharisees. That's why he used David as an example. You know, he said, remember David? David walked into the temple and ate the bread of the presence and no one had a problem with it. Why? Because he was the king. But let me tell you something. Someone better than a king is here. The son of man has arrived. And Pharisees, you're going to have to, you, you have a decision to make. You're either going to embrace this statement or not. Or not but Jesus said let me assure you the son of man is here and not only that I'm lord of the sabbath I'm lord of the sabbath Did you see it there verse 6 verse 5 so now we got the son of man but he he goes on he says I'm the lord of the sabbath what does that mean what does it mean to be lord of the sabbath okay look I think it means Jesus is saying, I'm I'm Lord over the Sabbath. I have authority over it. I can set it aside when I want. I can interpret it. It's mine. But there's something else going on here, and it's so critical. I have to push you now beneath the surface. When Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, what he's saying is, I am the Sabbath. I am the fulfillment of everything that Sabbath is about. Sabbath is about rest in God. Oh, it was about not working one day of the week, but the purpose of that was so that the people of God could be in right relationship with God. And Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of that. You cannot be in right relationship with God without the Son of Man. I don't care how many days you take off work, right? It's not about that. Jesus says, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. Amazing. That's what the next story is about. So just look with me now, verses 6 through 11. This next story is there for a reason. It's there to drive home what Jesus has said. It's this Interesting story, you have a man with a withered hand. And once again, Jesus is in the synagogue and he's teaching. And this week as I, as I was reading this, I, all these questions came into my head. That's, that's how I'll often work on a sermon is as I'm reading, I'll just ask lots of questions. Because my, my, my guess is if I'm asking questions about it, you're asking the same questions. And so I, wanna, I want to address what you're thinking about. So like I'm reading this and I'm like, there's all these, like all these questions I have. So like here's a question. Why are the Pharisees always following Jesus around? Like it's creepy. <laughs> it's so creepy. And they're spying on him, you know? Like do you see that in verse 7? It says he's in there and the, the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. Okay, in the Greek, that literally means to spy. It's like to watch someone out of the corner of your eye. And you're like, they don't know I'm looking at them, but they always do. And they're there and they're spying. They're like watching Jesus. Why? Because they literally cannot wait for him to break the Sabbath again. See, their hearts are, are being revealed. They're like, please, Jesus, do something illegal. We can't wait. You know what's crazy about that? You have a guy there with a shriveled hand. And the Pharisees would have been perfectly happy if he left that day unhealed. Isn't that amazing? So they're watching, they're spying. That's a question. Here's another question. Why didn't Jesus just wait until after the Sabbath to heal him? He could have. He could have waited he could have said to the guy, look, it's a little hot in here right now. Just come back tomorrow. We'll take care of the hand thing. You know, just come back tomorrow. He didn't, he didn't do that. In fact, he does just the opposite. Jesus says, "I'm what I'm about to do next, I'm going to make this absolutely a public spectacle. Isn't that interesting? Look at that in verse 9. He literally says to the guy, come over here and stand up. What I'm about to do, I I don't want anyone in the room to mistake what's happening. Now, why would Jesus do that? Because he knows that the heart and the meaning of the Sabbath is on the line. There's so much on the line here. This question that that he poses, look at it. Verse nine, Jesus said to them, he asked this question, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? He's, he's, he's saying, what would be the most Sabbath-like thing to do right now? Is the Sabbath about everything you're not supposed to have? Is the Sabbath about going without? Or is the Sabbath about blessing and life? And goodness from God. You have a man with a shriveled right hand. That is not an incidental. The right hand in Jewish culture was the hand that you used to not only earn a living, you, worked, you had to have right hand to work, the right hand was the hand that you used to do clean activities that were clean and unclean. You did unclean things with your left hand, You did clean things with your right hand, which means in order to participate in the religion, you had to have a functioning right hand. You have a man in the synagogue on the Sabbath, a day that's supposed to be about rest and being in right relationship with God, and he's totally unable to participate because his right hand is shriveled. And Jesus says, what would be the most Sabbath-like thing to do? Amazing. See, the Pharisees had turned Sabbath into don't, 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 don't. It was just, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. Okay, enjoy. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. And Jesus says, no, no, no. Let me tell you something. The Son of Man is here. And I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And I've come to open this concept up for you so that you can lean in. What we're going to discover in just a minute is there is no Sabbath rest without the son of man in your life. So here's my last question. Think about this. It's so interesting. Why? After Jesus has clearly demonstrated that God is blessing his ministry by allowing this healing to happen. Why do the Pharisees remain hard-hearted? Isn't that interesting? Why? Jesus, it's Sabbath. He makes the man stand up. And he says to the man, stretch out your hand. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. That, That statement, is there's a gospel gem hiding in there. But what's happening in that moment is everyone in the room is saying, wait a minute, what's going to happen? Is God going to vindicate Jesus right now? I mean, it is the Sabbath after all. Is God going to allow this to happen? Is God going to bless him with healing power? And if God does allow this healing, will people's hearts be transformed? Will they suddenly realize, oh, you are the son of man? And will they respond Rightly. Well, look what happens. Verse 10. After looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Amazing. Fury. That word fury, it's that kind of anger where you're so angry that you lose your mind. It's like you lose your logic. This is how they responded. And the reader is going, how is this possible? You have irrefutable evidence that Jesus is who he claims to be. And you clamp down your heart. Why would someone do that? Why would someone in the the face of irrefutable evidence say, I refuse, I refuse to see that. Sometimes when we only want to see one thing, we find all the evidence we need to justify that desire. Even when we're presented with this undeniable, clear evidence, Jesus is Lord. The problem is that if I'm going to say, Jesus, you are the Son of Man. You are Lord. Then I also have to say, I'm not Lord. And I have to arrange my life underneath your leadership. And sometimes that's just precisely the thing that people don't want to do. So profound. So you say, Okay, how do I respond to this? Like, Pastor, tell me what to do. Some of you are thinking that. Like, I want to respond. Tell me what to do. Here's what you do. You do what Jesus told the man to do. There's a truth hiding in here. What did Jesus say? He said, he said okay, stand up. And now, by my authority, you're going to be healed. But here's what, here's what you're going to do. Stretch out your hand. I want you to stretch out your hand. Now, what's, what's amazing about this is that the healing happened because of the authoritative word of Jesus. We know this. Only Jesus has the power to heal. But Jesus asks the man to step into it. He says, I, I want you to walk into this with me. You're going to contribute just this one little act of faith. Because in that moment... His hand was still shriveled. And so Jesus says, stretch it out. It's an act of faith, I know. And the man stretched it out. Now, River West, this moment was an unbelievable moment of love. This guy had lived with this his whole life. He was probably born with this. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt, this person who's authoritative, who's standing next to me, loves me. He loves me. He's calling me into this. And what's happening right now in this room is that the Son of Man is sending out that very same call into every human heart. He's saying, here's how you respond. Stretch out your hand. Take a step of faith. What could it be? Maybe there's a part of your life and you know, This is not underneath the lordship of Jesus, the son of man. It's time in faith. I've got to bring this in under his authority. Maybe you've been following Jesus for many years, but there's that one thing that you've held back for yourself and you know it. Stretch out your hand. Maybe for you today, it means mustering the courage to go get prayer. You know I need to pray with someone. Stretch out your hand in faith. Just walk over there. when we're done, there will be people standing over there, prayer warriors in our church. They're wonderful people. One of them will meet you there. They'll take you back there behind the Holy of Holies thing that we set up over there. The curtains, you know, it's not creepy. It's not weird. And they'll just, it's so simple. They'll say, how can I pray for you? What's going on? And then you just share your heart and someone will pray with you. I guarantee you, you will be blessed. Stretch out your hand. Today, some of you, you've been waiting. You've been resisting the table. Because, you know, I'm not, I'm not a believer. I don't believe this yet. But actually, there's a part of you that knows, I do believe this. I just have been resisting Christ. Jesus says... Stretch out your hand. Put your hope in Jesus. Come to the table today for the very first time as a believer, having put your hope in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Amen? That's what we're going to do today. This morning we're going to participate, as we do every Sunday, in an ancient activity. This goes all the way back to the origins of the church. The church would gather and we, and they would celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it's always the same elements. The bread is not a meaningless symbol. The bread represents the body of Jesus, which was given for the church. And the cup is not meaningless. It represents his blood. The new covenant, Jesus said, in my blood which is given for the forgiveness of sins. And so what's happened, we're participating in this beautiful ancient thing that connects us to Christians throughout the ages where we rejoice and we celebrate and we say, thank you, God. So the table is for believers. And we say, thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. And I'm inviting you, if you love Jesus and you believe, to come today. Will you bow your heads with me? I will pray. The worship team will come, and we will worship together. Let's pray. Lord, it is so obvious that Luke, he could never have come up with this on his own. This gospel is not a human invention. It was inspired by your spirit, as Luke wrote. And so we thank you for this compelling, powerful, profound picture of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior. Thank you, God, for what we're learning as we study this gospel. Thank you for how you're changing us. Thank you, Father, for all of the folks who've joined us over the last few months. I'm so thankful, Lord. I pray they feel welcome here. And God, it's our great desire that as we continue on this journey that we will begin to understand more and more who this Jesus is, this Son of Man, this Christ, because we want to follow him and we want to worship him and we want to be like him. So thank you, Lord. We pray it together in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.